Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Starting in verse 11, I'm going to read down through verse 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works, good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent as, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Today's passage is similar to a few weeks ago as we talked about the promises of God, the gospel of Jesus, and then looked at the therefore, therefore comments. Therefore, in light of what God has done, then you should behave, behave like this. In verse 2 of chapter 1 is a perfect example of this. It says, so put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. In light of what we heard of last week, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in light of the fact that we know this glorious and eternal good news of Jesus Christ, it's almost like we've got superchargers that were plugged into us and we're ready to go. We're on the mountaintop, we're excited about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we know who we are, we are this royal priesthood, chosen nation, a holy people, a people for his own possession, and in light of that, how, how are we going to live? And so we've seen this pattern multiple occasions now, this is the third time in this book we've seen it. So likewise, in those other two instances, in light of who we are in Christ Jesus, let's go. Let's take the hill, let's do what our master Jesus has told us to do, and let's follow him in obedience. So we're going to get some direction for Christian conduct. How are we to live in light of who we are in Christ Jesus? You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. So how are you going to live? How am I going to live? And that's what Peter's going to tell us today. How are we to conduct ourselves in the madness? In verse 11, we're told a couple things. In fact, we're getting, we're getting a couple more identities today that are going to be helpful to us as we navigate what we're navigating in this world. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are who you are, and now, as Christian people, beloved, as the people of God, you, beloved are to live as sojourners and exiles, and then we're told we are to make war, because there's a war being made on us. So to this holy nation, both Jew and Gentile, now beloved together as the people of God, it doesn't matter what tribe or tongue, come one, come all, no matter where you are in this globe, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you are now this chosen nation with this identity as the people of God, and now we're told we are also sojourners and exiles in this world, sojourners and exiles in this world. Now, this is important for us to understand. Um, we live in an age, an era, in the history of this world, in the history of this world that God is interacting with. And we are going through eras or stages, and from the ascension of Christ to the descension of the Holy Spirit towards until the return of Christ, we are in this last age. We are in the end of times and have been for 2,000 years. And in this age, we are giving warnings throughout the scriptures. The book of James is a perfect example of this. We're giving, given warnings about this world. Not talking about the cosmos, not talking about the air we breathe. I'm talking about the way of the world. We get warnings like this in James chapter 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is something that the modern church needs to rediscover. 
friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So there's the kingdom life that we're living. There's the people of God. There's the way Christians live their life. And then there is an antithesis existence. There is a thing called the world. And the world is the system and the schemes of the devil and the flesh. So the systems and the schemes of the devil and the flesh are the way those who are outside of the Christian faith are living. And when there is a dominant culture, a majority of people living according to the flesh and the devil, there's going to be this world system that's in, the, in place. And it's everything that's in opposition to the way God would have us live. There's this, this war here. And so friendship with this way of living, the Bible says, James tells us, is to be an enmity with God. It's to be at war. The world is at war with the kingdom of God. There's these clashing kingdoms. Now, we are to live in this world as sojourners and exiles. We are passing through this world as exiles. We will never fit in, ever. We will never fit in with the way of the world, ever. And we have to understand that. Christians don't win popularity contests in the way of the world. The flesh is in opposition to the spirit. The devil is in opposition to everything that is true. So we're, we're not trying to buddy, buddy up with things that and ways of living that are in direct opposition to the things of God. That's not how God would call us to live. Instead, we're to live as exiles in this world or as sojourners in this world. We're always on the out with the world that will never change. So the sojourner in exile is going to be live or is going to be living their life in a different way than the person living by the standards of the world. There's two different ways to live in this life. And that's going to work itself out in in varying ways, but there's two different ways to live. Live according to the flesh and the devil or live according to the spirit the way God would have us live according to his word. And for Christians, we're these strangers and exiles that the world looks at and thinks that's strange. And yet that's what God has called us into. So we're going to look at some for instance passages. Here's how we live. This is a different way to live. And here's an example of how we live differently. The first example we see is that we wage war and we abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. If, if you don't know this, if you heard the message, become a Christian and life is a bed of roses for the rest of your life, you heard a false message. Because to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be invited into spiritual warfare. You can't avoid it. It's a part of this thing. It's, a, it's promises that we get in God's word. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to wage war because there is a war coming to you. In fact, it says really explicitly that the flesh, the passions of the flesh, wage war against the soul. So we're told to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now this is different. This is not some weird asceticism that the book of Colossians comes against. This isn't just abstaining from things that God calls good, or somehow just, just trading your flesh to abstain from things that are good. This is about the passions of the flesh that are sinful passions. It's abstaining from things that are waging war against us. Now, because the way of the world is to indulge the passions of the flesh, the way of the Spirit, the people of God, is this example of the antithesis of that because we are abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Why are we called to abstain from those sinful passions? Because, even though Peter references in chapter 5, verse 8, that the devil is roaming around this world even though he is a defeated and bound foe, he is still looking for those he, who he may devour, and we are told by Peter to resist the devil. Before we're told to resist the devil, four chapters or three chapters before, we are told to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh come up inside of us, even for those who are, have been born again and have this new and regenerated now heart of flesh. We have this raging, sinful desires that are still present within us. And if we don't temper them, if we don't war against them, if we don't abstain 
and instead indulge, then we will be walking in the way of the world rather than the way God would have us live. So he tells us what we should know. The flesh and dwelling sin hates the spirit. And therefore Christian men and women are people who know how to wage war by abstaining from those passions. So how do we fight? It's, it's interesting here. We're going to use three examples here of how to abstain. You want to know how to fight? You want to know how to, how to be in war against the passions of the flesh? Peter just says, well, abstain from them. Abstain from the simple passions. It, 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 it kind of sounds simplistic because it, it is. It's a warfare and you simply abstain from the warfare. It's as simple as this. Let's look at alcohol, pornography, and covetousness. Okay? If you struggle with a passion for excess, the passion of your flesh is excess with alcohol, abstain. You're free to abstain. You don't have to drink a single drop. Other people have Christian liberties with alcohol and do not struggle with the same things you struggle with with alcohol. If that is a raging war inside of you, a passion of the flesh, abstain. It's as simple as that. Don't dabble with areas of temptation. Abstain from those passions of the flesh. Step away and say, not one drop. You're free to abstain. Let's think about pornography for a second. Pornography wages war against our soul. And the flesh inside, the passion, the sinful passion inside that desires to see things that should not be seen. What the Apostle Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, abstain from that. Don't look. Do whatever you have to do. If you have to take a baseball bat to the screen, do that. Sell it on the marketplace. That's a better way to do it. Just clean it, sell it on the marketplace, make some money. But abstain. Do whatever you got to do. It's like, get accountability. Do what you have to do. Abstain. Don't do that with alcohol or with pornography. Because those passions of the flesh that are in there will drive you to dark, dark places and will keep you there if you are not able to abstain. What about covetousness? We've talked a little bit about this the last few weeks. Envy and covetousness. We've talked about it all the way back from chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. So covetousness is this thing, is this monster that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, how are you going to fight against the passions of the flesh that are inside of you? Well, if envy has a hold on you, you, you've got to put it to death. You have to abstain. And instead, here's, here's a, a simple key. With, and this is the things that I'm working through as well. A simple key to abstaining from the sin of envy or that, that flesh, that fleshly passion that's waging war against you. Instead of longing for something that God has not given you, use that energy that's being wasted for praising God every single time you feel envy or covetousness coming on. So every single second, give it away to covetousness or envy, to that sin that's waging war against your soul. Instead, every time you feel it on, God, thank you. Thank and praise God all the way out of it. God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for my life. I thank you for what you've, you've given me to do with my hands. I thank you anytime you feel that coming on. Abstain. And there are certain things in this room that we deal with, sins that you deal with, and you know that you just can't dabble. You cannot walk, and it may be things that are just completely morally, morally neutral, but for you, it's a passion of your flesh that you just have difficulty controlling, so you, just, you just need to abstain. You're free to abstain. That's not legalism. You don't have to do that thing. You don't have to live that. You don't have to. So abstain from it because the passions of the flesh are waging war against the soul. Our flesh hates us, not just the devil. And there's areas of our sinful heart that hates the work of the Spirit in our life. And we have to recognize that. And so we live differently. We don't indulge the passions of the flesh. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. That is an example of how we live life differently as sojourners and exiles in this world. Everybody else indulges the flesh and gets people around them to affirm their self-indulgence. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. But also, 
there's another way that we conduct ourselves that's totally different, and it's just strangers and exiles. We're living differently as God would have us. It has to do with honorable conduct. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Humble, or excuse me, honorable conduct. Um, we can get down to the nitty gritty on this or just say it like this. Live with integrity in all of your life. Don't have a way of existence in one sphere, your, your work you, and then your church you, and then your home you. Don't have a, I live this way in front of this group of people and live a different way in this group of people you. Be consistent across the board and live honorably among the Gentiles. Now, I love this because uh, the Bible sometimes generalizes, and we hate general generalizations in 2022. Okay, I'm a Gentile, right? Here's how this works. Live honorably among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles here, the, the Gentiles, they're not talking about uh, Christian Gentiles. Peter is talking about non-Christian Gentiles and using Gentiles as a shorthand for non-Christians. In this instance, Gentiles just means non-Christians. And in 2022, here's what we do with generalizations. And I love this because sometimes generalizations are so fitting. Okay? And we live in a day when you say that human beings have 10 fingers. That like literally 20% of the room say, not all human beings. Some have nine. Some have had their finger chopped off. Some have 11. Not all human beings. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay, yes, I get that. We, 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 we live in a, like a... a, a like, we don't have people that think logically or reasonably in our world today. What's popular is to think, like, it's just insanity is popular. It's just what it is. It's craziness. And today, like, you know, here's the 2022 version of hearing this. Like, not all Gentiles, God. I'm a Gentile Christian. Peter, I'm a Gentile Christian. Can we come up with another term, please? It's like when, when Paul says all through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when God says all Christians are liars, drunkards, and gluttons. And the Christians, you know, of 2022 say, not all, like, no, all, okay? You can speak in generalizations sometimes. And here, the general, generalization used for non-Christians is the word Gentile. And Christians are to live honorably among them. That means living honorably amongst our enemies. And the whole goal is that they would see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. The way we conduct ourselves to our enemies is absolutely revolutionary. And we're going to see here in a minute that doesn't mean wet noodle. There's, there's directions and parameters, parameters around how we conduct ourselves. But Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, pray for our enemies, do good for our enemies. Whereas the way of the world is, no, only do good to those who scratch your back. I will scratch your back if you scratch my back. But if you're not for me, then I'm not going to be for you. But there's a, a different way of living our lives here. And Peter calls us to honorable conduct. And that honorable life in the real world is demonstrated time and time again in a million different ways. One way that our honorable life and conduct is demonstrated in the, in the world is how we submit to human institutions. And I want you to hear me say this loudly and clearly. We are to submit to every human institution. In the last few years, we've had to try to figure out what that means. But one thing we know it means is that we are to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Because that's what the text says. That's what we see. We're to demonstrate how we live honorably in a real life, real world situation. And in verse 13, we get this situation. Look at verse 13 and 14a. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Again, you know what that means? Here we go. Big Greek lesson. You know what it means? Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's what it means. It means what it says. We have to understand how that applies to us. Now, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise 
those who do good. Now, in the context, what we're looking at here, this is the kind of good conduct that's going to demonstrate to a world that it's going to bring some people in on the day of visitation when Christ returns, and they will have seen the good works of Christian brothers and sisters, Christians, and those good works is what it's end up giving the avenue of hearing the gospel, and it was the good works of Christians that ended up being somewhat compelling to these non-Christians. Now, to others, our conduct demonstrated to the world is not going to be seen as honorable. It's not going to be seen as honorable. We, like honorable living in, a, in the public sphere, it, it, it's not qualified as being honorable, whether or not it's received as honorable or not. We can live and conduct ourselves in an honorable manner, manner to Gentiles, and some of those Gentiles hate us and not receive the honor that we're giving. It does not matter, excuse me, it does not mean that we're not living honorably because some people don't see it as such. But we're clearly called to live in that way. So one of the ways that's demonstrated is how we conduct ourselves in the civil realm. This would be thing, things like politics, being a citizen of a state, nation, or empire. So we've got to ask the question as we're working through this, because as we read this passage, we realize that we do not have an emperor in our country. And we are to be subject for the Lord's sake, for Christ's sake. For Christ, if I'm going to obey Christ, that means I have to know how to be subject to every human institution. I want to obey Jesus in this. And I have to know how to be subject to an emperor or governors sent by emperors. So how do we do that? What does that mean? It says specifically to every human institution. So because we don't have emperors, because we don't have governors sent by emperors, here's my question. Does that mean that it's only contextual and we don't have to obey these commands? Because look around, we have no emperor and we have no appointed governors by an emperor that's supreme in our land. There, there isn't any. So we do, do we approach 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 and say, since we don't have those, that this is not binding for us in any way? Well, here's the answer. No, we must, for Christ's sake, figure out how we obey these commands. Any command we get from God, we want to seek to obey. Do we not? Do we not? Amen. We want to obey all that God has for us. So we have to, for Christ's sake, know how to submit to human institutions or governing authorities. So who is that for us in America or the state of Illinois? You see, the application or obedience to these commands are going to be unique to whatever government or system of civil governance that's in the land. It's going to be unique as that system of authority over you. Who is the emperor as supreme and the governor sent by the emperor as supreme to us in America? What is the human civil institution we are a part of and must submit to for the Lord's sake? Well, first, we live in a state, the state of Illinois. Let's just hear from the founding documents, the preamble of the Illinois state constitution before we look at our federal constitution. And this is going to give us a little bit of direction here of, of what is supreme in America. And who is supreme in America? And how do I submit to uh, uh, submit for Christ's sake to whatever is supreme in America? We'll start with the state of Illinois. We, the people, sounds familiar to the federal government, right? Those three words are incredibly important. We look over that some of the people, like me, didn't pay a whole lot of attention when I was in Mr. Jenkins' uh, uh, class or in Marion. High school before he resigned was it Jenkins or Jeter's? Mr. Jeter's class. He taught in my junior year. He taught taught uh, the civics course, and I didn't listen a whole lot. Should have. Uh, students listen. Um, you want to learn. You don't want to just get through so you can play basketball. Um, we the people are the governing authorities. are those who have given authority to whatever comes after that in the preamble of 
the federal documents, the state document. Let me keep on going. This is the state of Illinois. You can just get this right online. We the people of the state of Illinois, grateful to Almighty God for the civil, political, and religious liberty which he has permitted us to enjoy and seeking his blessing upon our endeavors. And it keeps going and it ends with this. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the state of Illinois. Who established this constitution for the state of Illinois? Was it a governor? Was it an emperor? Or was it you? It was the people of the state of Illinois. So what, what is supreme in the state of Illinois? In the civic realm, and we know that the civic realm, even the civic realm, even as an emperor, sits under the law of God, not over the law of God. That's why God's people in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, even in the context of a monarchy with an emperor who is a tyrant, we still look in the face of that tyrant with shoulders squared eye to eye and say, we will obey God over man no matter what you say. We will submit to anything that does not violate that. That's in a, in a, in a monarchy with an emperor. But when we live in a constitutional republic, we see with these three words for the state of Illinois that we have civic responsibilities and obligations in this state. That we, the people, have given any of their elected or appointed officials any sort of authority that they have because of the voice of the people. That's the human institution we are a part of. What about the United States Constitution? We, the people of the United States in order to, to form a more perfect union, establish justice. Who establishes justice? The president? No. Congress? No. We, the people, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In a constitutional republic, here's the question, which is, in verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. The institution that we are a part of at the state and federal level is a representative institution in which you and I play governing roles. So how are we then to be subject for the good of the people, for them to see our good works? How are we to be subject to our civil institution here at the state and federal level? Here's a couple things to consider. Under no circumstance, if we're to obey this, do we treat elected representatives as if they are kings who sit over the Constitution? If you want to violate 1 Peter 2, look to J.P. Pritzker, J.B. Pritzker, and say, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. If you want to disobey God, be subject to him like that, and you'll disobey him real quick. That's not the civil institution we are a part of. It is a human institution. It is a civil institution. We are to be subject to that for Christ's sake. Therefore, we must rule well in our state and our nation as governing authorities. We must submit to our Constitution that is under the law of God, and we must hold elected representatives accountable accordingly. Didn't we see this over the last two or three years? The confusion about 1 Peter 2 and Romans chapter 13 led so many people to say, you just obey them as kings. If you want to disobey God, you do that. But if we're going to obey this, you know what we have to do? We have to defy tyrants if we want to submit to a human institution. We have to. We have to say no to mask mandates. We have to say no to anything that would violate human conscience and Christian conscience. We have to say no when J.B. Pritzker says, here's how you worship God. 
We have to say no if we want to obey because we have civic obligations under the state and federal constitution. Obedience to God requires disobedience to tyrants. What is a tyrant, you may ask? A tyrant is anyone who believes they are above the established law of the land. And then if the king is the highest established law of the land, he is a tyrant who violates God's law and asks others to do the same. If he thinks he sits above God's law, that's a tyrant. In America, or at the state level, or the city level, or whatever level of, civic, or of governing authorities that we're under, or that we elect to represent us, anytime they think they sit above the Constitution, that is a tyrant. That makes J.B. Pritzker a tyrant. It makes Joe Biden a tyrant. They're in opposition and war against God. And when we obey them... As if they are the supreme emperor, so are we. So we have to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we must not stutter when we read it. And whether it be the emperor supreme or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, we must insist on it. Now, it's interesting because here in this passage in 14b, we get some clarification even under, like even in the realm of civil government and human institutions that there's even a higher law, a higher law of the land, and that is the law of God. Because in verse 14b, we just read, governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. This is the fundamental role of civil authorities. Civil authorities exist to punish evil and reward good. That's the primary function of civil government, according to God's word. Reward and punishment. Now, how can our nation know evil and good? How do, how do, do people who we elect or appoint, number one, that's why it's important about who we elect to represent us. And it's important who we fire who's representing us in an evil way. Now, how then is a nation to know those who are in, in these positions of governing authorities, how are they to know what is evil and what is good? These are, this is like moral ethical categories here, right and wrong, good and evil. And if governing authorities exist to punish and reward, then they must know what's good and what's evil. They must not switch them around, rewarding the evil and punishing the good. So how can a nation know right from wrong? If the people of God and if the churchmen in the nation don't know right from wrong or up from up from down, left from right, is it any surprise that those who represent us don't know either? Christians are obligated to teach the nation, starting with God's people, and then going out from that, what is right and wrong? What is good and evil? And when God's people waffle about that, what you end up with over time, over the decades, over the centuries, is the madhouse that we have today in our country. That's why things like marriage matter in the public square. You, they're, they're elected as representatives, and what's supposed to happen is good is rewarded and evil is punished. It also matters within the church. We must know right and wrong, as stated. And we cannot be confused about basic, basic ethics. We cannot be confused about that. Last week, I heard a story, like a small, still, a scoring story of an example with little ears in here. I want to be careful, but there was a nine-year-old boy that did the right thing and said, you are a girl to another in the classroom. And she was a girl who was confused about that. The teacher reprimanded the nine-year-old boy for saying that. As if he was being a bully. There's a proposed bill in Maryland right now that was actually already put on the shelf allowing the killing of children up to 18 weeks old. 
And when you accept things like abortion already, and it's just invaded every area, even of Christians, who, it's just, it's just madness. And not wanting to call it what it is, murder, is there forgiveness for murderers? Yes. There's forgiveness for murderers, for goodness sake. But to have your child murdered by somebody else is to be an accomplice of murder. And for any man who would stand by and let that happen, he's an accomplice too. And so we have to take these matters seriously. We have to know right and wrong within the house of God. And the house of God in this country is so confused and we have to come back to the Lord and just say, thus say the Lord, what you say is right. When you say something's up or down, it's up or down. If you say something's right or left, it's right or left. If you say something's right or wrong, it's right or wrong. So we are to live well and do right in the public sphere. And uh, we are to work to suppress evil around us by our conduct. Now look at verse 15. It's so fascinating here because it's something interesting that happens in verse 15 where we're told that ignorant people are to be silenced. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. Aren't you glad when you hear phrases like that in scriptures? There's like four or five times where it says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, your sanctification. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice again, or rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But like, these statements are so helpful. For this is God's, the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When we live as God would have us live as the, within the church and even in the civic realm, it's the will of God for us to do this. And by doing good, knowing right from wrong and doing the right and not doing the wrong, by doing the good, we are to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, so what good? What good is being talked about here? Uh, for this is the will of God that be doing good. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is the good that's specifically being talked about here? Well, number one, submitting to human institutions. Really well as an American citizen. Uh, knowing right from wrong. Um, we, we have to be good citizens. We have to. We have to rule well as citizens in our country. And then when we do that, foolish people, their ignorant speech gets silenced. When God's people live out the good we're talking about, foolish speech is silenced. When we don't do good, when we don't live this out, when we're not subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, well, foolish people get loud. Foolish people get really loud. And all of a sudden, foolish people are the ones that are getting listened to the most. And instead of the foolishness and silly speech being shut down by those who say, that's not right, that's wrong, no. And I know Jesus, and you need him, and he loves you. Instead of that, we just kind of like plug our ears like, ah, no big deal, no big deal. Well, foolish people become the loudest voices. And the foolish 3% in our country are the loudest voices. Right? It's madness. There's hope. There's always hope. Here's what's happened. Christians have either retreated from the world, thank fundamentalism, or Amish Mennonites, retreated from the world, and given everything over and said, no, the public sphere, civil government, none of that matters, peace out, or substituted moralism for the gospel and God's law, so thank moral majority. Where as long as you just come alongside, there's right and wrong, and we're a moral majority, but it's not, it's not held together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those kinds of things don't have staying power. What we must do, this is uh, totally revolutionary here. We must live as God has called us to live, both privately and publicly, and call others to do the same through the gospel of Jesus. Amen. Radical, right? 
You want to be a punk rocker in 2022, obey Jesus and do what he tells you to do. You'll stand out like a sore thumb. We must live as God has called us to live in all of life. Honor everyone. Verse 16 and 17 calls us to some freedom here. No matter what civil government or human institution is over us, we get to walk in freedom, and every Christian does, even Christians in communist China. They're free people over there, whether they realize it or not. They're free people there. They're Christians. Look at this. Verse 15, excuse me, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. Even as people who are living under the thumb of Roman rule, they were called to live as free men and women. Christians are free men and women, even those who are living under tyranny. Now, how can it be said that we're free? Number one, we're spiritually free. We know that. But also there is a freedom in knowing that there's always a higher authority than the tyrant who's pressing us down. And there is a limit to what they can call us to do. Because the minute anyone tells me to do something that goes against what God has called me to do, I show how free I am by saying no. Nero came to a bunch of Christians one day, late AD 60s into the early AD 70s, and was telling them things like, You've got to do what I say, call me Lord rather than Jesus being Lord. And if you won't call me Lord, you're going to get burned at the stake. And they showed Nero their freedom, a freedom that he did not have. And they said, burn me up. Crucify me upside down. I don't care because I'm a free man. I'm a free woman and I'm not under your thumb. I belong to God. We are to live as people who are free. God has set us free. Now, notice what that means because there is this interesting thing here because in the context of verse 16 and the use of the word freedom, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for, for evil, but living as slaves of God. Living as slaves of God. The ESV says servants. The word is doulos. It, it is slave. It's, it's a slave. Living as a slave of God. And you and I have found freedom in this slavery to God. You've heard me say the phrase before, but there is a freedom in this world that looks like slavery and a slavery in this world that looks like freedom. And those who are in this room, our chains have been ripped away. We were set free. We are in the service as slaves of King Jesus, our master. And there, and there alone, we have found freedom. It's ultimate freedom. God has set us free. And we're free because we are slaves of God. Therefore, as a slave of God, I'm going to submit to human institutions because I'm his slave. That's what he told me to do. And this is why there is a conflict with communistic regimes, secularist regimes, atheistic regimes, any regime throughout the world that is not trying to honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why there's going to be massive persecution because we have institutions at war. We are free in Christ Jesus and finally have found freedom to stand against tyranny. Um, we've graciously found freedom so we obey God even over man. That's why secularism eventually hates Christians because we will not obey them. There's a restriction that God has given us that limits their power in our life. It limits their power in our life. There's always a higher authority for the free man or woman in Christ Jesus. And that higher authority is always God's law. What God says over what man says. And we're finally free. And we're free to do what? I love this passage. What are we free as slaves of God to do? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What a great saying. This is like a saying a gladiator would say right before stepping out into the battlefield or something like that. It's like the, the it's, a, it's a, almost like a, a military term that, that unites us or something like that. 
But this is what God calls us to do as free men and women. Honor everyone. You're free to honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Christians, we love each other. We don't shoot each other. We don't slander each other. We don't gossip about one another. We love each other. We talk to each other. We don't talk around each other. We take care of one another. We don't envy one another. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We are after the glory that comes from God, not the glory that comes from men. We do not fear men. We don't fear anything they can do to us. We don't fear their taxes as much as we would hate them. We don't fear their laws. We don't fear their judgments. We fear God. And we know that the king, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God, and he turns it whichever way he wills. Who is a king standing next to the God of the universe? And finally, we honor the emperor. How do we honor the emperor here? There's no emperor. Here's a real command. I said it last week. We are not called to be patriotic at the expense of worship, worshiping Jesus. But if we're to honor the emperor, even under Roman rule where there is a tyrant king, how much more are we to honor the United States Constitution? Are we to honor founding documents? Are we to honor the way things were set up in this country? Repudiate that which is wrong, but we are to honor and give honor where honor is due. And then those who are elected to represent us, certainly we should honor them. But if they are living and ruling and serving us in a way that's rewarding evil and condemning good, we have to call them out. A way to honor them is to say, stop doing that, you evil, wicked tyrant. Stop doing that. Bend your knee to Jesus before it's too late. Stop rewarding evil things. Um, there's going to be those that we honor. Um, to, to honor the Lord and to honor even a, a man or a woman doesn't mean that we have to agree with them. And it doesn't mean they have to feel honored by us. You want to honor a tyrant, tell them how evil they are. And start praying some precatory psalms over them. And you can honor them as a human being. Cry out for their salvation because they're on a path of destruction leading others down that same path. Honor everyone. Now, honoring everyone means honor the, honoring them according to God's standard, not according to their standard. Everyone doesn't get to dictate the standards of honor. God does. So we honor them the way God would have us honor them. We should love everyone and honor them and call them as human beings to hear about the love of God, the love of God that he has for sinners. And then when you say the word sinners and come to Jesus to have full forgiveness of sins, come to him for goodness sake. You're a human being made in the image of God. And when you see people defacing the image of God and you see those that are elected saying, yeah, that's okay. When you see our state marring the image of God and, and making tax dollars go to that. We have to say, no, that's not right. I can honor the swimmer from Penn, Penn State, by saying you're a man and not care if he feels honored or not from that. And that's honor. It would be dishonoring of me to lie against God to say, no, you're a female. You want to talk about real hate speech? Agree with such lunacy. Love the brotherhood. Christians love one another. We don't slander one another. We take care of, take care of one another. It's pretty self-explanatory. Unfortunately, what is the uh, reputation of the church? In the exact opposite, devouring one another, eating one another, gossiping about one another. Depending upon your church experience, there may have been more or less. It needs to be stated that the church is made of Christians who are both saints and sinners. 
who have a dwelling sin that we still struggle with. So to be a part, part of human relationships in this church, you've heard me say it before, is to say that there is going to be some hurt here. You're in our church long enough, there's going to be some hurt. And long enough, you're going to hurt somebody. The whole point is we're coming together to celebrate the one perfect one, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. slain for imperfect sinners. And so because of that, we're free to be gracious with one another, to confront one another when we need to be confronted, to love everyone, to love the brotherhood. We love Christians. We love the church. Don't be that silly Christian who says, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That is foolish and it's misguided. Jesus loves the church. He loves you. And so we are called to love the brotherhood. Fear God, not man. We've already talked about it. Fear God, not man. And then honor the emperor. That's not the president in America, and it's not the governor in the United States. That's not the emperor. That would be the Constitution of the United States. That's the highest supreme in our constitutional republic under the authority of God's word. If there is an emperor in America, it's a constitution, state, federal level. And so we honor that. And we call those to live under that authority and ultimately under the authority of God. Now, we have options that were before us that were mentioned in passing. When we come to passages like this, we can say, no, we're not going to be subject to this human institution. We're not going to participate. We're going to see it as only evil and we're going to retreat and we're not going to be a part of that. That's an option for people. It's not a faithful option. Or it's to come over here and just say, everybody just needs to adopt Christian ethics. It doesn't matter if you repent or not. You just need to, you need to know what's right and wrong. And just if you believe in what's right and wrong, then uh, everything's good. We see that with uh, Dave Rubin, who gets a lot of conservative things right. But if you saw what he announced this last week, he's a conser conservative pundit. I mean, th that's not a win. We don't need conservatives like that in our country. We need, we need conservative people, forget politics for a minute, that want to conserve the way God would have us live and bow a knee and say, yes, Lord. That's what we need. And so it's not a win to be on the right side of certain things or the left side of certain things, whatever it may be. The, the win is that we honor the Lord Jesus in the public square and in the private square. Uh, so there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. As Christians... We, don't, we live as sojourners and exiles. We don't live like them out there, us, uh, us and them. We don't live like outsiders. That's non-Christians. We don't live like Gentiles. We live as God's people, as freed men and women in Christ Jesus, subject to him. So we live and obey Jesus privately. And by the grace of God, we live and obey Jesus publicly, even in the voting booth. We obey Christ everywhere. And in our civil obligations, where we have responsibilities, we ask the Lord, what would you have me do? And we obey. We have to know right from wrong. Now, if you're not a Christian in here today, this might seem strange to you. If you're a Christian in here today, this might seem strange to you as well. This is not a rah-rah rally uh, political speech. This is a rah-rah, let's obey Jesus. This is what it says in the text. And if I've been wrong in this, please bring correction. We have no emperor. So we have to obey and submit to every human institution for the sake of Christ. If you don't know Jesus today, the most important thing you need to hear today is that you can find freedom in slavery to Jesus. Bend your knee to him and become a free man or woman today. And if you know Jesus, the most important thing we need to know is obey Jesus in all of life. Let's pray.